0: So we're on episode four now of this podcast, which is called Realistic Medicine, What, Why, How. And um, and we're really lucky today to have Norma Davidson with us, who is um a resident here in the Highlands and has been a patient and a member of the community, and it's a real prominent member of the um Highland Senior Citizens Network. And so Norma's gonna kind of share some of her story with us today which will be really helpful so welcome Norma thanks so much for joining us and um, tell me a wee bit about yourself
1: well first of all you've already introduced what my name is so the yes. best thing is I grew up in the highlands of Scotland all over but I left I ran away from home when I was 14 and pretended I was 16 and joined the Quaranks Queen Alexander's Royal Army Nursing Corps In England. And from there, I took ill when I was in the army and they had to do the very first operation on me that I'd ever had in my life, where they found I suffered from anaphylactic reactions to many anesthetic drugs. So under British law, you couldn't be in an armed forces for that because you'd be a danger. So I threw a dart into an atlas and it landed in a country called Rhodesia. So I packed up everything and just went to Africa. When I got there, I joined their military, which was combined forces, but carried on with nursing training and we would work with casualties, cazavacking people out. I learned to fly an aeroplane and land it in case the pilots got shot because this was a war-torn country. Um, And this carried on till about the late 1970s. And then in 1979, I hit a landmine where everything changed because it was then found I became an incomplete quadriplegic after everything settled down. I can move sometimes. I've got no sensation in a lot of parts of me. Uh, Every time I take an anaphylactic reaction, it causes swelling in the body. And when that swells up, it also seems to cause problems in my spine as well. And it can take me ages to start getting movement back after each episode has, has gone you know, been cleared and I'm out of ICU, can take months. I eventually got transferred back to Britain in 1986, and that's then when local NHS and things got involved because, yes, I was an incomplete quadriplegic. I'm classed as an incomplete quadriplegic. It's a C2, C5. But I shouldn't be defined. Of That doesn't define me, who I am. It's what I can achieve but then I was taking anaphylactic reactions to everything around me. Sometimes I was in one hospital for 90 times in one year with anaphylactic reactions. So it was decided they were going to try and work out what was causing this. And they realized that I had what was called hereditary, idiopathic and acquired angioedema, which all turned into anaphylactic reactions. The physical side of me, The disability, I can cope with, but that's the side that takes over everything because you go to hospital, you'll take a reaction when you go through the door. didn't matter what you were going in for, the deal with the reaction, get you out and realise, oh, we haven't done tests. We haven't done anything. I had a fantastic doctor later on who then took over and said, we've got to work a plan because I was falling through cracks. Things went wrong. Things would go right, and we then started with a different way of treating me altogether. And that's just a, roughly in a nutshell. Probably forty years all come together.
0: Yeah. Wow. What a fascinating journey you've had. <laughs> and then, um, and and so, what what do you like? What do you enjoy doing in life now back in the Highlands? Anything that I'm well, as you can see. I like activities. I like action.
1: doesn't matter what it is. I, still, I like to be a daredevil. I've always been a daredevil. So even now, even in my wheelchair and everything else, as people in the Highland Senior Citizens Network know, one of their staff is traumatised from when a few years ago with NHS, we had people from NHS there and the government, but I decided I wanted to go to the skate park in my wheelchair. And they did a film for NHS and I did it. And I finally got to the very top of the bar, which nobody would ever done in the wheelchair, but they forgot to pull the camera through back. So so stopped me hitting the camera through. I pushed my wheelchair around to fly off the top and crash landed on the floor. And I was just so excited going, yes, yes, while everybody was running. Think she just broke her neck proper this time. So, yes, I still like to do, even if it's the tiniest thing in the house and I I can't move that day. so long as i've done something that i can think i've done something
0: yeah that's amazing you're, <laughs> braver, you're braver than me that's for sure I, you don't catch me in the skate park
1: <laughs> i don't do that now but i did that was about four years ago was the last time we were out
0: yeah so um tell me a wee bit about like what what's most important to you particularly from you know the your the delivery of your health and your care what what's important for you well the main part I think the whole lot would come under one heading
1: of this is my reality and keeping it real in my career to me this has got to feel you've got sufficient time with the carers or the doctor or anesthetist or whoever's dealing with you that they see you Mm -hmm. not the problem but they see you as the person and we then are able to work forward individually to try and work on what needs doing that is the most important thing of all is that we're seen because often you're not you're just you're a number
0: yeah and you're you're obviously very experienced at at, um you know and eloquent in the way you get yourself across and and confident what like what advice would you give people who maybe are like new coming into healthcare? You know, I meet a lot of patients and people coming into the system and, and they've maybe been previously healthy and they've had a bad diagnosis and, and they feel so worried about asking questions and about about asking to be seen as an individual. So, um, you know, I'm on a bit of a crusade with my colleagues and, and there is a kind of global movement trying to make sure that healthcare people are asking like what's important to you, what what's important for you, your goals for for life and for after you've had any kind of treatment. Mm-hmm. But but how do you think we get our patients and the people using our services to feel like empowered to be as active as you are? Well to start
1: with what you see now is what it's taken years to finally get to this. When I first became physically disabled and everything, probably for the first 20 years, I wasn't seen. I wouldn't speak out. I would be very quiet and fell through many, many cracks. And you felt you couldn't speak to the doctors. They had to make the decisions. They had to do this and you just had to go along with it. What made the big difference for me was when I finally got to talk to a doctor, where they actually didn't have their back to you while they were talking to you, because normally they're on a computer or they're writing in a book, where they're actually facing you and make you feel, I can actually talk to this person because they're facing you, they're looking at you. And you Mm -hmm. think, oh, maybe I can talk about this problem. Because when you go to the doctors, you go in and the doctors are often very busy because they've had another patient. So they're finishing up the notes from that or they're busy trying to sort your notes. And then they ask you with your back to you, what's the problem? And you think, well, I've got this, but I don't know, should I talk to you about that? Should I talk to you about this? Like now, when somebody's looking at you, you can open up and say something and then the conversation can start. Until then, you just sit there and say, oh, oh, well, it's this, and get out as quick as you can because you're so uncomfortable. And yet you think, oh, I should have said this, I should have said that.
0: You almost almost need to go in with a script. Like, I've, you know, I'm a doctor, but I've also been a patient and and I, I totally feel that, feeling of almost like panic and pressure to get the right word right in time yes and, and obviously we're like you know gp appointments are so short and and i don't know a gp who wouldn't love to have more time to spend with patients and um i lived in australia for a year and when i was there i went to a gp there and it was a very different experience because a lot of the healthcare there is private so they had a longer appointment and um and i went in and i immediately was like but this is the problem. This is the problem. And then, and and they were like, "Oh, so you're Scottish? Like, what's brought you here? And um, where are you working? And what are you do?" And I was like, "Oh, I'm working in this hospital. But but this is what I'd like. This is what's happening. This is what I'd like. You know." And I felt that pressure to get it out quickly. I, and and it was so different. And it was quite unnerving almost to have that different experience. But I came away from that thinking, "Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had more time?" Mm-hmm. But with the time we have, I'm sure that there's ways we could use it better. As yes, well. because you end up panicked in the doctor's surgery that you find you've missed out half of what the original
1: reason you went, because you just, you, the doctors are assessing us when we come in. mm mm-hmm. But people tend to forget it's weird also assessing the doctor when we come in. And if the doctor's flustered or they look like they're really busy, you try to quickly work out in your head in moments what's more important because we're holding somebody up, somebody else may not get seen. And it's just, there's all this pressure for everybody.
0: Yeah. And all this going on within your mind, which maybe isn't visible either, you know, because I'm sure... Like if I went into a consultation and I and the, and the person I was chatting to had all these assumptions about how busy I was and stuff, if they told me, then I would be able to say, oh, you're right, I am a bit busy today, but I'm really keen to get to give you as much time as possible or to say, oh, no, I'm sorry, I've given you that impression. You know, mm-hmm. like in, enabling everyone to be a bit more honest and speak up I think is so important. And and that's why um, there's a big drive at the moment, to, uh, particularly to get patients to come kind of armed with some questions when they come to see clinicians. So to come and say, okay, you've advised me to have a treatment, tell me what the benefits are, tell me what the risks are, tell me what other options are open to me and what would happen if I don't do any of this? Because it can be overwhelming to think up questions in the moment, can't it? Yeah.
1: Very scary because you then you you you're often you're overthinking it because if you just got one bit of information you try to process that but overthink your next question you think that's actually not what we wanted to see yeah. and it's it's a two way streak, though that's the part that we're needing to I think in the UK particularly it's always been the professionals and the people but the two are speaking two totally different languages we need to somehow start to speak the same language
0: yeah and being being okay with being totally honest and kind of vulnerable and saying I, yes. you know, you're giving me the impression that you're too busy to deal with me rather than it and and seeing that at the time rather than it being something that lingers and gives someone a you know a bad experience or not the right care that they're looking for yes so that would be I think that would definitely be one my big takeaway um and and and, and us as doctors and nurses we can we can set the scene with that you know at the start of an appointment if there's any and if there's anything that's coming into your mind feel free to stop me and ask me a question or clarify because we're really bad at speaking in jargon you know and that, that's kind <laughs> of making light of it yes um I, norma you've mentioned before uh to me you showed me that you've got a lot of care plans you know in at home with you Um. <laughs> can you tell us like a wee bit more about them Yes, well, what happened was there was a wee bit of a problem with my
1: care because I'm not a simple care package. I'm complicated. One, because of the physical disability, which is bad enough, but then with the added anaphylaxis to everything anybody's ever trying to do, whether it's a new drug or whether it's just put me in a ward with other people and they've sprayed something. So it's very complicated. But what happens is you get one doctor, if you, especially if you're in hospital, And then that doctor, you go away, you come back and you're given a different doctor. Nobody's all on the same hymn sheet. Mm -hmm. So it did cause big problems where I ended up eventually in intensive care unit. Um, My own specialist in our local hospital had sent me off to another hospital, but there'd been lack of communication between the two hospitals. And I was on, had just come off a ventilator, so hadn't been, wasn't able to speak. I was supposed to go into a private ward. The hospital had just finished, it was a Friday, that ward wasn't ready, so the patients had gone home from daycare, where they'd had operations, and they put me in there and put the blinds around me, but then everybody from there left at four o'clock, hadn't told the ward where I was, Cleaners came along and locked that door. I had a drip on and tubes. And from Friday until Sunday, nobody knew I was there. Two hospitals, one said they'd sent me, one said they couldn't find me. And I was found eventually on the Sunday. Oh my God. And no, just through lack of communication, drips had run out. I couldn't press a bell because there was none at the bed. I couldn't speak because I just had the ventilator out. And that's when I survived that one. And when they finally, they didn't do what they were going to do in that hospital because there was such a furrowed, they sent me back to my original hospital. And that's when my specialist said, this must never happen again. We're going to have your own care plan that we'll be carrying with you everywhere. And everybody must be able to communicate it, no matter whether I can speak or not. Mm -hmm. So that was where it started. And then from there, it really became an start of an excellence this was in 1993 which was well ahead of what they're doing now there was no laptops and computers then but he my doctor said he they felt this was coming and i would get lost in the system again so we started where they sent us to their own hospital science lab and he'd written to them all of what was wrong with me my condition and he wanted to all printed out for me to take home with my family go through it and then a week later we'd have a discussion what we wanted to happen to me where I was going to go with it what the hospital could do how my whole care would work and that made the biggest difference in my life it wouldn't work with everybody but with me because I like to be involved it was great you'd get your blood results well to people blood results mean nothing but we worked out what my normal for me was. So even if it was in the normal range, but it was a way up here in the normal range and mine's is normally down here, something's wrong. We could be triggering. And so now we get all the blood tests are sent in paper form to my house and I put it into graph form so a doctor sees it and they can actually see the spikes up, down, where it is. And there's a little bar where my normal is. And it just helps everybody Sort whatever treatment they need, and the files are always with me. That I just show it, and they suddenly see, Oh, the hospital thing's wrong, we better just check on that. And it usually stops an anaphylactic reaction happening in advance by knowing who we are. Simple things like that, and yet it's complicated for some, but for me, it works. It keeps me out of the hospital. They had the doctors collaborating with the specialist, they have the GP and the chemist all working together for me for trying to find the right stuff that was way back as i said but that now has bore fruit now especially with covid and everything Mm -hmm. because they were all able to treat me at home without trying to get me to hospital every time something happened and that's the way i think should go you know not to the in-depth of me but if patients had something with their own information on that it's a follow-through because you Computers will only give you so much in it. It won't give
0: you the whole uh, thing. Um, I, I think a lot of chronic conditions, some of the more common chronic conditions like diabetes, mm-hmm. people have actually made apps based on the similar thing that you're doing, um, <clears throat> which pe- which means that people have got complete ownership of their own care. Yes. But where, yes. where we don't have that kind of thing is in people who've got rarer, living with rarer illnesses like you are. Yes. Yeah. And so I feel like Norma, you could start you could start your own tech platform. Well I know they won't that. It, but you will because
1: we even have our own ECG machine thing here that does these. And oh, if wow. there's any problem, it just gets printed off and the carers go mm-hmm. down to the doctor with it and then they send it to the hospital and they work out a plan. And yes. um, like my medications When, as I was saying about the graphs, all the blood tests, each one is individual. The yellow is where I should be. Mm -hmm. And yet if they're out of that, then it normally means something's heading in a different direction, which for me personally works. But it's a a collaboration and a communication between the patient and the doctors that they get it right in partnership. Too often it's separated, which you fall through the cracks.
0: Yeah, and, and that's like a lot of feedback that we get is that different services aren't that good at talking to each other. So yes. so actually, for you as, a, as the owner of your illness and your condition, your life, if you have control of the information, then it means yes. that you, you always know what's right and that people aren't getting it wrong and things aren't getting lost in translation. Yes. And, it, and we are, you know, particularly through COVID, there was a lot of movement to, to sort of empower people to do more of what you've done and, and and making their own plan and particularly kind of anticipatory care planning. So thinking about yes. things like if, if your condition worsened, where would you want to be and how would you want your care to be? Um, but sometimes that was communicated badly or misunderstood and it came across as a, a conversation about death, which it, it didn't mean to be. No, it didn't your example shows a really good example of how care planning helps you to live well. Would you agree with that?
1: Yes, because we did get an anticipatory care plan done. Good and bad, the very first one was terrible because it was done by a doctor that didn't even know me. And mm. it didn't even know who I was, what I was. And it wasn't any of my wishes. It was just what they felt should happen to me if something should happen. And when I finally got a copy of it, I wasn't happy. But the specialist of the hospital looked at it and he wasn't happy. We said, no, no, we need to do it with you involved. So we rewrote a complete new one and it covers everything from if I'm not well, do I get treated at home? The paramedics treat me here as best they can in communication with the hospital. Only if it gets very bad, which hospital would I go to? Where would it go? If carers were here, how much do carers be get extra training so they can look after me at home? What do I want to happen? Do if it did come to end of life, um what did I want happen? Would I be? I've already got in mind and read letters that I don't believe in the Liverpool plan or euthanasia. So they know I want treatment, but not where well, you're sustaining my life but if I'm gone, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But it always look to what my quality when I come back, but my quality, not what other people think my quality is. That's a big difference because, to me, my qualities—if I can smile at somebody one day and they can smile back—that has been a great thing for me. It's not all about what I can get out there and do; it's what I can do here, just for me and the person that's with us.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and that—and that's where the care planning comes in, isn't it? Because it includes what's important to you, yes, and 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 what you want to be able to do, um, and that is completely different for different people.
1: Yes. Yes. Oh, so,
0: well, that's really interesting. And then, so tell me, I think we're going to get tight for time, actually. Oh, um, what do you want to tell me about? Do you want to tell me about an experience of excellent care or something that could have been done better?
1: We probably- well, the excellent care was where I've just told about the doctors in the hospital there that time, because it did. That all set up for future Yeah, the terriblest, the worst care that I've ever had, either in a hospital setting and at home. In a hospital setting, you're just a number and you get lost and forgotten. It's not the first hospital I got lost in. I got sent to the wrong hospital another time and I ended up with some poor anaesthetist standing in a lift with me strapped to a a trolley upright because it only held two people and while they're pumping the bag because I was put into a total wrong hospital that didn't even have a doctor in that hospital and I took an anaphylactic reaction there to get me down a steep road all the way to another hospital that had the ICU in it that's where patients kind of get forgotten here Mm -hmm. in a care at home place which was also bad care is where you don't get a choice about care companies or anything and NHS just pass you over to something where you've not given a choice, you're not told about it, and just one that I was with, they're no longer with, was it was so bad, they didn't even have, I don't know what they called them, was it PBGC checks where they have to Not one carer had had one of them, and when it came to my medication, they would open the bottle of liquid ones, they weren't trained on medicine, or well, we're not allowed to pour it into the cap, take one glug or two. So eventually... I got hold of the care inspector and that all changed. Myself and other patients that were in that all got taken out back to NHS. That's where it all falls apart. Everybody else makes decisions and there's no checking. You need it to be a partnership where we're all helping each other. Yeah. You were asking a question earlier about top advice I would give that might help, just small little changes. I did put a few thoughts down, which... There's just three main parts and it's just listening, communication and information. If that was my three top ones to say, that's the most important because from that, even to look at us, we're individuals, we're, a, we're of worth, we're not our diagnosis and we're not our need, we're another human being here. And then leave us feeling that it's okay to ask the questions. Because often we feel, oh, it's not okay to ask it. Leave us feeling we can ask the questions about our condition, our care, and what we do or don't want to happen. And lastly, in listening with us, to give us value that, yes, we may be the patient that's to be supported, but we want to be in the centre of all the decision-making. So it's partnership as well. So that's really how I would say in a nutshell.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. And, And from the information side... What do you think? How could we better share the information with you? or With me
1: particularly, I know a lot of people have these technology. I'm not good with it unless somebody else is sorting it. I still am a person who likes it in paper and mm-hmm. speaking face-to-face yeah. so that then you can think better when you're face-to-face. When it's on technology, you're spending all your life trying to even figure out where to go or how to work it. Yeah. Uh, doctor surgeries, I think if they had more leaflets explaining what we can try and say at doctor surgery and telling people it is okay to say these things. But respecting each side, I don't mean everybody demands or they won't just their thing. It's got to be a partnership through it all there together. Sure.
0: Yeah, that is great. And I think that's like a great note to... to and, leave the social,
1: and also to show that we also need Continuity. Because I have fallen through the cracks all the time where you get put into care, you're coming out of hospital and so it'll be three weeks before a carer will turn up because nobody told them, but they did, but they just got lost to the computer or they find that you're actually in the dead drawer and then they go to see, Oh, is that person still alive? And they realize, yeah, I'm not on the floor dead. I'm still alive.
0: And so it's, you know, it's there needs that continuity and follow up. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of work being done around that at the moment about, mm-hmm. you know, when people are discharged, they should be discharged with a copy of their discharge letter in a yeah. way that we understand it. Written in layman's terms, yes. um, you know, because um, we can't be just writing doctor to doctor or doctor yeah. to nurse and, um, and missing out the person who is in the centre of it. So mm-hmm. there is a big movement towards that but we've definitely got work to do and yes. and even what you spoke to about about um you know you like a letter and again it's thinking about the individual and there are ways that we can pick a box to say this person prefers a letter this person's not at home very much so they'd rather an email or a, a text mm. you know and with all the technology out there that we've got in our at our fingertips. Um, we're probably we probably don't use it as well as we could, but um, but it's all things that we could be be um, doing better. So, have you got? Is there like a final, like, have you got like a final message or motto or like thing that you want to just leave us with? Mainly,
1: like I said at the very beginning, that we shouldn't be defined by our illness, but by that we are who we are. And there is a life here and also that we've got to keep it real. We can all have pie in the sky thoughts of what we'd like, but keep it real because this is the reality of our lives.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. (laughs)